1: Hello, I'm Mark Riley. And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world, ever, ever. L is for Let's Dance. It is. So let's go
2: straight to a press conference, shall we? It took place on the 17th of March, 1983. This from the Newsreel Introduction. Claridge is that most exclusive of hotels in London's West End at lunchtime today. Times are hard in the record industry, but EMI is celebrating against serious opposition and for very serious money. They have just signed a real superstar. And then Bowie is uh, introduced by a very Claridge's looking bloke with the words, ladies and gentlemen... David Bowie.
1: And then he comes in uh, looking like we hadn't seen him look before. He looks amazing, doesn't he? He looks so youthful and tanned and blonde. Yeah, well, there's a a good reason for all of that. So (laughs) in walks David Bowie in a sharp suit and now sporting his famous blonde barnet. He shuffles almost nervously with a chair and says, do I sit down here? Sitting down, he realises the array of microphones on the desk before him obliterate the gaggle of journalists gathered in front of him and they can't see him either. That's right. Doesn't help, does it? So standing up and parking his backside on the aforementioned desk he says, no I don't. I sit here. So he sits down on the desk and he and looks very comfortable and relaxed and
2: confident. Definitely. He goes on. About two days ago, EMI phoned me up in Australia and said, um, would I like to take a 25 hour flight back to come and sit in a room with 75 journalists? Over the last year, i made a couple of movies and I've completed an album and single called Let's Dance and tomorrow tickets go on sale in the UK and the next few days in Europe for concert performances in London,
1: Birmingham and the rest. Blah, 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 yeah. So the reporter continues, David Bowie is here to merely announce his new album, his first in three years and his first live shows for five years. He remains the most influential pop performer to have emerged in the 70s and not yet put a foot wrong through constant changes of musical direction and a constant emphasis on style. So all that is inarguable. Also interesting to note that the reporter drops him uh, five years and changes into yeah, his link. So he yeah. sounds to me like he's a bit of a fan. Definitely. So, Bowie's return to the public eye
2: after the amazing Scary Monsters album of 1980, and the world is watching. But it's first to say that no-one completely expected the world-dominating album and tour that was being announced here, did
1: they? No, they didn't, know. Uh, so Let's Dance, a single was released three days earlier before the actual press conference and the album's coming out a month later. There is a really interesting interview with Bowie as well where he explains his move from RCA to EMI, saying that RCA really didn't like his last two albums. Mm. So we've also talked about Low, how they didn't like that yeah. and how they sent him a letter. And uh, he does say there one of the RCA executives suggested to Bowie that he should rent an apartment in Philadelphia and try and write Young Americans too. Uh, so he seems, to, he seems to have been banging his Head against a brick wall with the record companies for a while here. Yeah. And he was obviously uh, and understandably galled by this. It's also interesting that the interviewer suggests to Bowie that the irony is that the new record, Let's Dance, is not a million miles away from Young Americans – Albeit like a New York soul style rather than the Philly style, mm. and then uh, Bowie says yes, but it's much better when nobody's telling you what to do. So it's great. I mean, it, yeah. he could have just gone over there and and he could have gone and rented a flat in Peckham and still written <laughs> "Let's Dance." Uh, but he'd been in Australia anyway, and yes. that's why he was so tanned and, and healthy looking. That's right. Uh, but he didn't want. To, he just didn't want to play ball with the record no. company. And also, you have to think, that the, and this is looming large within all of these notes and research, that there was a financial kind of gain to of be. Of course, there was. Yeah, and also it's Bowie the contrary isn't it just doing
2: things, whatever he wants to do? In yeah. the end, that's what it's all about. He was also asked to comment on the figures being bandied about regarding his signing on fee: ten million pounds, seventeen million. Absolutely nowhere
1: near accurate, said David. At that point, the uh, the guy interviewing him says, "Okay, can you give us a more accurate description of how much you get?" And he went, "Of course, I can't." <laughs> so you don't even know. I mean, is it well documented now? It has been said seventeen point five million, but it might be more. It might have been less. I don't know. But he, he obviously wasn't going to say. Of course not. So, to the album itself, Let's Dance, it's the
2: 15th studio album by Bowie, released in April 83, three years after uh, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, co-produced by Sheik's Nile Rogers, and it contains three of his most successful singles, title track Let's Dance, made number one in the UK, and in the US, various other places too, as well as Modern Love and China Girl, which both reached number two in the UK. China Girl was a new version of
1: the song, of course, which Bowie had co-written with Iggy Pop for The Idiot. Most certainly, yeah. And it also contains a re-recorded version of the song Cat People, for some reason. So Let's Dance was nominated for Album of the Year Grammy Award in 1984, but lost out to Michael Jackson's Thriller. Well, it probably would, yeah. wouldn't it? And it sold 10.7 million copies worldwide, making it Bowie's best-selling album. And it's Bowie's 18th official album released since his debut in 1967, if you include the live albums and the covers album Pin Ups, and the collaboration with the Philadelphia Orchestra yeah. in 1978.
2: At one point, Bowie described the album as a rediscovery of white English ex-art school student meets black American funk, a refocusing of Young Americans. So Young Americans is there hovering about in the background, isn't it, certainly? It is.
1: Well, I mean, if you think about it, Young Americans gave him his first American number one. Yeah. And, and he did turn his back on it, as we know, with mm. the ensuing albums. But that did give him the fame that he wanted at that time and then didn't want so much once it had arrived. Yeah. And he wanted it again, painfully. of course he did. Let's Dance also seen as a stepping stone
2: for the career of the Texan blues guitarist Stevie Ray who plays on it critical reviews for Let's Dance as an album have been mixed, although Rolling Stone later described it as the conclusion of arguably the greatest 14-year run in rock history. So the Beatles couldn't even match that run, could they have almost
1: perfected because they weren't around for that long for a start. That's the thing, if ever I do say that, oh yeah, you yeah, had the best run of albums of anybody, people immediately go, oh yeah, well yeah. what about the Beatles, which is the only band that they can really throw in there. Some might say the Rolling Stones, you know. But no, it did not really hold up with the Stones. I don't, it, I don't think, think so, no, not personally, anyway. But uh, yeah, with the Beatles, it's it just time really yeah. had they given themselves a the time quite possibly anyway it's generally believed that the success of let's dance led to bowie trying to build on his commercial success with the following two albums which is where we start going off, off, off-piste a little bit tonight and never let me down, ironically, mm. uh, both of which I think were pants largely. And so mm. does Bowie, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. He, he described them as uh, his Phil Collins years. That is a damning. <laughs> <assessment>. <laughs> it must have been awful to be Phil Collins, <laughs> mustn't it? Because, you know, you've just got, he's a massive, hugely wealthy uh, rock star yes. in this massive stadium band, you know, and you've got the the coolest of cool. Mm. Uh, Bowie just really just dissing you like that. And
2: almost dissing the whole decade that Phil Collins became a superstar in as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Bowie had planned to use producer Tony Visconti on the album initially as the two had worked together on Bowie's previous four studio albums. However, he chose Nile Rodgers for the project, a move that came as a surprise to Visconti, who'd set time aside to work on Let's Dance. Mm. Uh, Visconti called Coco Schwab as Bowie's assistant and she said, well, you might as well know Uh, He's been in the studio for the past two weeks with someone else. It's working out well and we won't be needing you. He's very sorry. Uh, And the move damaged the two men's relationship and Visconti didn't work with Bowie again for nearly 20 years. Well, until 2002 and Heathen, of course. He would hurt that, wouldn't it? It But,
1: but, you know, (sighs) who knows what Tony Visconti would have done with it, but you have Mm. to say that uh, ultimately it would appear to have been the right move. Mm. So Rogers later recalled that Bowie approached him to produce his album so that Bowie could have hit singles. That was what Bowie wanted it. And it is a fair call, you know, Although, looking at Visconti as well, he'd had his fair share of big hit singles with T-Rex, hadn't he? They defined pop music in 1972. So, anyway, Rogers reported that Bowie came into his apartment one day and showed him a photograph of Little Richard in a red suit getting into a bright red Cadillac, saying... Nile, darling, that's what I want my album to sound like. Brilliant. It's <laughs> uh, a story that that photograph was still on Bowie's wall. In is, his that flat. Right? Oh, is that, I that heard right? I it somewhere. Oh, I hope so.
2: Bowie's remit from EMI was to release a commercially buoyant album. Uh, the album's influences were described as Louis Jordan, uh, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, Bill Doggett, Earl Bustick
1: and James Brown. A right mixed bag there. It is. And I, again, you know, if you look at Southside Johnny and the Asbury Dukes, they um, play at, like, Sail Waterside now up the road. And they, <laughs> they like, they, <laughs> you know... <laughs> pretty galling to think that you've like a, influenced one of the biggest selling albums yeah. of all time.
2: Yeah, uh, Bowie spent three days making demos for the album in New York before cutting the album itself.
1: Yeah, which was unusual, wasn't it, really? He just usually showed up to the studio with a few ideas. Yeah. But anyway, so, despite this, the album was recorded start to finish, including mixing, in 17 days. Bad going at all, Good is it? Good going.
2: Stevie Ray Vaughan met Bowie at the 1982 Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland after Vaughan's performance. Bowie was so impressed with the guitarist, he later said, he completely floored me. I probably hadn't been so gung-ho about a guitar player since seeing Jeff Beck with his band The
1: Tridents.' He was an amazing guitarist, Funny, was. yes. The solos on that record yeah, are just wonderful, jaw-dropping. And of Bowie, Vaughn said, To tell you the truth, I was not very familiar with David's music when he asked me to play on the sessions, which is the same for a lot of the people yeah. who were with him. You know, Carlos Alomar and all those yeah. guys weren't aware, were they? Or Mike Garson, if you look at it. Uh, David and I talked for a few hours about our Double Troubles music, about funky Texas blues and its roots. I was amazed at how interested he was. At Montreux, he said something about being in touch and then tracked me down in California months and months later uh, a few years down the line Stevie Ray Vaughan described the recording sessions
2: for the album he says uh David Bowie is really easy to work with. He knows what he's doing in the studio and he doesn't mess around. He comes right in and goes to work. Most of the time, David did the vocals and then I played my parts. A lot of the time, he just wanted me to cut loose. He'd give me his opinion on the stuff he liked and the stuff that needed work. Almost everything was cut in one or two takes. I think there was only one thing that needed three takes. So the same method of working that he employed with like Robert Fripp and all the rest of them. You know,
1: Adrian Ballou. It's the same thing, isn't it? And also even like wanting to go into the studio and just get it done yeah. which started really with his Work with the Spiders, didn't he? Yes. Unusually, Bowie played no instruments on the album. I don't play a damn thing. This was a singer's album, is what he said. And this is how Bowie later described the title track. The original demo was totally different from the way that Niall arranged it. Bowie played an early demo of the song for Nile Rodgers on a 12-string guitar with only six strings strung on it and said to Niall, Niall, darling, I think I have a song which feels like a hit. I wonder if every time he addressed Nile Rodgers, he did say Niall, darling. Well, we know that he used to slip into the um, Pete and Dud, Derek and yeah, Clive yeah. character with uh, Brian Eno, didn't he? So maybe yeah. that was just his way of talking to, uh, <laughs> being quintessentially English, darling. Absolutely. Niall then
2: took the chords, which he said felt folksy, and helped craft them into the version used in the final production of the song.
1: So a long time collaborator Carlos Alomar, who had worked with Bowie since the mid-70s and will continue to work with Bowie into the mid-90s, claimed he was offered an embarrassing fee to play on the album and refused to do Ooh. so. He also said when working on Bowie's follow-up album tonight, they
2: didn't play on Let's Dance because Bowie only gave him two weeks' notice and he was already booked with other work. However,
1: Alomar did play on the accompanying tour. He most certainly did. Uh, so the album was seen as a commercial and critical success by professional critics, though opinions varied on the artistic content, while one review called it Bowie at his best. Another felt it pleasantly pointless. Oh, that's
2: pretty damning. It's yeah, ridiculous. <sighs> so you know the legacy of that album. In 1989, the album
1: was ranked number 83 on Rolling Stone's list of the 100 best albums of the 80s. In 2013, the enemy ranked Let's Dance at number 296 in its list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Although Bowie had charged producer Nile Rogers for making hits for him, Bowie would later say, at the time, Let's Dance was not mainstream. Okay, Bowie also said it was
2: virtually a new kind of hybrid using blues rock guitar against the dance format. There wasn't anything else that really quite sounded like that at the time, so it only seemed commercial in hindsight because it sold so many. It was great in its way, but it put me in a real corner in that it messed about with my integrity.
1: Well, paraphrased Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, this is, again, just that be careful what you wish for. So we've already mentioned with young Americans that he, you know he wanted to make a big soul album and and wanted stardom mm-hmm. and the money that he desperately needed at, at that time, ridiculous as it seems, and now he's he's gone down the same route and it worked and put him into a corner and yeah. we mentioned you know the following albums were him running off on a path to try and make more money and get bigger and bigger and, and it was that was his downfall wasn't it, it for was. that period he
2: took his eye off the ball definitely he did
1: but we also said of the LP it was a good record but it was only meant as a one-off project I had every intention of continuing to do some unusual material after that but the success of the record really forced me in a way to continue the beast it was my own doing of course but I felt after a few years that I'd gotten stuck Yes. Yeah, so really is a victim of of
2: his own success. Uh, Bowie later said the success of the album caused him to hit a creative low point in his career which lasted the next few years. You couldn't argue with that could you? No, sadly. He said I remember looking out over those waves of people who were coming to hear this record played live and thinking I wonder how many Velvet Underground albums these people have in their record collections. I suddenly felt very apart from my audience and it was depressing
1: because I didn't know what they wanted. That must have been a real crossroads for Bowie there. (coughs) And he's right he is right because I mean I went you went to Milton Keynes to the Serious Moonlight Tour, and it was just incredible oh, but I did I waited, I've mentioned it before, I waited down the front through all the bands that I didn't want to see and then all the knuckleheads came in at the end and just uh, when Bowie came on and just made it really uncomfortable to be right down the front yeah. there but I have to say Bob David if you're listening up there, which you won't be um, then, I wish you was <laughs> uh, then <laughs> yes. I, I had all the Velvet Underground albums and I've still got them. So on to the track listing then Bobbert. Okay side one, all these songs written by Bowie of course uh, Modern Love China Girl, which is Bowie and Iggy Pop. Let's
2: Dance Without You. To Side 2, Ricochet. Criminal World, written by Peter Godwin, Duncan Brown, and Sean Lyons, a cover version. Cat People, Putting Out Fire, co written by Bowie with
1: Giorgio Moroder. And Shake It. All right, so we come to the first, well, first tune, Modern Love. What a way to start. A great tune, yeah. So the opening track of the album, naturally, Bowie claimed the song was inspired by Little Richard and it maintains the album's theme of a struggle between God and man. And the line, get me to the church on time, is taken from the lyrics of uh, My Fair Lady.
2: Yeah, that's great, isn't it? By the time Modern Love was issued and edited as a single, Bowie's serious Moonlight tour was well underway and the track had become a popular encore on the tour. It was a great live Event that, wasn't it? Brilliant. Uh, China Girl next, song written by Bowie and Iggy Pop, joined the years in Berlin, of course, first appeared on The Idiot in 1977.
1: Yeah, so the song became more widely known when it was re-recorded by Bowie, a big hit. Uh, he released it as a second single from the most commercially successful album, Let's Dance, and the UK single release of Bowie's version reached number two for one week, uh, the 14th of June, 1983, behind... Every Breath You Take by The Police. Uh, which oh, is... your face. Oh, oh. I, I can't help. I was born with it. But uh, No, it's a decent pop song, isn't it? And oh, I know okay. that you like it. There's nothing wrong with it at all. I but... don't like that tune, I'll be honest. I okay. really don't. So, uh,
2: Paul Trinker, the author of Bowie's biography, Starman, claims the song, China Girl, was inspired by Iggy's infatuation with uh, Kulin Ngoyen, who was a Vietnamese woman. Yeah. Nile Rogers, producer of a song in 1983, explained his view of the meaning. He said, uh, I figured China Girl was about doing drugs because China is China White, which is heroin. Girl is cocaine, I thought it was a song about speedballing I thought in the drug community
1: in New York coke is girl, heroin is boy so then I proceeded to do this arrangement, which was ultra-pop, because I thought that, being David Bowie, he would appreciate the irony of doing something so pop about something so taboo. And what was really cool was he said, I love that. Mm. And also, uh, we will have all seen the footage, won't we, of um, Nile Rogers doing the... Yeah. Which, obviously, there was no sign of that on the Iggy no, version. of course not. He made it up, and it's uh, such a brilliant motif
2: for that it tune, is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, undeniable. And uh, Let's Dance, of course, the title track single, one of Bowie's fastest-selling, entering the UK Singles Chart number five on its first week of release, and it stayed top of the charts for three weeks. Soon after that, it topped the Billboard Hot 100, becoming Bowie's second and last single after Fame, of course, to reach number one in the States. So, should we take a look at the uh, sort of a few of the
1: personnel on Let's Dance? Okie dokie. So uh, this is where we do the Chuckle Brothers thing, isn't it? Bob? It where is. we throw yes. it back to me to you. Okay. So David Bowie, naturally. Uh, Nile Rodgers, Stevie Ray Vaughan,
2: Carmine Rojas, Omar Hakim, Tony Thompson on drums rob sabino stan harrison one of the sax players robert aaron steve elson Matt gollian sammy figueroa frank sims george sims david spinner and bernard edwards of chic of course the niles old mate plays bass guitar on without you and the production team davy bowie nile rogers bob clear mountain and bob ludwig I should mention, you know, was, I'm slightly younger than you, Mark, and you had your Bowie epiphany uh, earlier than I did. But, you know, I got into Bowie when I was about 15, so that'll be about 1981. And, of course, there was nothing out there in terms of products, so... It was- Scary Monsters had been and gone and he was doing stuff like, you know, Baal on BBC, there were a few little compilations and then there was the Queen single uh, Under Pressure, but nothing really he could get your teeth into, so when he did this press conference at Claridge's in 83, suddenly he's out there and he's got a new product and it's shiny and very poppy and big and very commercial and so it was just like heaven for me and I remember going to, uh, I was at college in Southport at the time and I remember going to a record shop on East Bank Street I'd go to like every week Uh, and having, obviously all the Let's Dance covers were in the window, so I bought it the day it came out and the rest of it and he had a giant cardboard cutout sort of life size of Bowie you know in the sort of boxing pose right uh, in the window and I said to him look when you're done with that do you think I could have it and he said yeah sure so I went in you know maybe like three four weeks later and I got this big thing and somehow lugged it home on the bus and it was in my bedroom for ages it's probably worth quite a bit of money now but I obviously I just went to the tip in the end but you know (laughs) my my bedroom at that, that time was just a shrine to Bowie and it was just so great that Let's Dance was happening while I was so so enamored you know of everything he
1: was doing. What a real shame that you didn't keep that, bar. I know. That is a tragedy. Oh. And, you know, I mean, yes, I went, I went to see Bowie at Wembley, um doing Station to Station. Mm. I didn't see him on the stage tour, and at that point in time, I was in the fall, yeah. and that kind of was uh, all-consuming really, and, uh, and so I never went to see Bowie again, until 1983. Wow, okay. And, and Serious Moonlight, so I never saw him in the interim. Right. So, uh, yeah, it was. it and it was a big thing for me. I remember when the, the whole thing was announced, Claridge's and all, I like, was like, the next morning, desperate. To get tickets. And I also remember seeing at Milton Keynes Billy Duffy oh, and what's, yes. what's the singer called? Ian Asprey yeah. out of the cult coming out of the backstage area. And now they hadn't played that day, so they were obviously just ah, they were pop stars and, right. and, and they were famous. But I grew up round the corner from Billy Duffy mm. and I knew him. And so I was half thinking of saying Billy, remember me, No chance. get me backstage, see David. Well, obviously, I didn't bother.
2: Oh, there is that great story as well about Milton Keynes, isn't it, Where because uh, The Beat were one of the support bands, weren't they, and Rico, the Jamaican sax player, had no idea who Bowie was, so he didn't even recognise him walking around backstage, and he just thought he was a waiter, and he asked him for a bottle of water. <laughs> oh.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional.
2: Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob
0: Hughes and Mark Riley.
1: L is also for Lift Off with Aisha. It most certainly is. A British TV show produced by Granada Television for the ITV Network, which ran for 144 editions, spanning eight series. What? Between November 1969 and December 1974. I had no idea that it ran for so long. Well, there
2: probably is a reason for that. We will get to that later, won't we? Okay. So, preceded by the show Discotech, which had been hosted by Deanne Greaves, the replacement was originally called Lift Off and was aired in the children's programming schedule, but was seen by many as ITV's due answer to Top of the Pops on the BBC. Yeah, I
1: loved it. So Aisha Brough, a.k.a. Aisha, had appeared on the earlier discotheque in March 1969 and was one of the first women of Asian heritage to front a TV series on British TV, initially co-hosting the show with Graham Bonney and later singer Wally White, and he was a folk singer. Yeah, he was. The series was produced by Muriel Young, who'd also produced Clapperboard,
2: shang and Get It Together, as well as Mark Boland's Mark programme for ITV Granada. And the premise of Liftoff was to showcase music... Requested by viewers writing into the series. Yeah, the
1: requests were interspersed with performances of either new releases or current hits. Generally, only two or three guest acts would appear each week. The majority of the songs were performed by Aisha herself or would be played into the studio and a dance troupe would choreograph the track. The main dance
2: ensemble were known as The Feet, identical twin sisters Teresa and Leslie Scoble, who were concurrently appearing in the ITV children's drama Time Slip throughout the 1970 run. Wow, okay, so
1: for one series, a resident band known as Patton sang selected tracks each week. Series 5 featured Guy Lutman, Lynn Garner and Chris Marlowe as the resident singers. Later series featured puppets Ollie Beak Aww. and Fred Barker as co hosts That sounds like Fred Barker was a puppet. He wasn't <laughs> He was a human <laughs> <Sorry>, being. <Fred. laughs> he was definitely a human yeah, being. No
2: offence. During the series run, Aisha contributed a column to the children's magazines Look In and Disco 45. She also teamed up with Roy Wood to record his composition Farewell, which was
1: released as a single and used as the show's theme Tune. Yeah, so Wood's band, Wizard, often appeared on the series and Bruff appeared on top of the pops backing Wizard on several occasions. When performing with Wizard, Wood often sported a white star with the initial A in the centre of his forehead, while Bruff wore the same makeup featuring an R. This led to some media speculation that the two were involved in an unconfirmed relationship with many reports claiming they were engaged. Well, when I interviewed Aisha Bruff, this is only maybe three years ago now. Was it we, that long? Wow. We talked
2: about this. Okay. Uh, and she said, Roy and I were engaged for about a year. We were together for a year and a half. I met him through Liftoff. My husband, so this is Chris Bruff, wasn't it? And I were getting divorced, and because he was a record producer, uh, he was the one who said, Roy, I'd like you to produce her. So he produced the record, which is farewell, of course, and we got to know each other, and ended up dating and getting engaged. So there, there you have it. All answered. Good work, Bobbitt. Uh, all Although the track failed to chart, Aisha performed the song on Top of the Pops, BBC One. Of the 144 episodes made of Liftoff, it's only confirmed that three have survived in the ITV archives. What a tragedy that is. The show was replaced by a similar format series, Shangalang, hosted by the Bay City Rollers, which in turn was replaced by Get It Together, hosted by Roy North, Linda Fletcher, and uh, later Meg Nickel,
1: all produced by Muriel Young. Muriel Young was just so important yeah. for music at that point in time. Just so absolutely brilliant. And uh, and so you when you interviewed uh, Aisha Bruff, she did tell you about oh. the the Bowie aspect of it. And we'll, we'll get to that we in will, a short will, while, yeah. won't we? So uh, the, we won't go through the whole, list of episodes, but the is series one, the 5th of November 1969 to the 28th of January 1970. We're going to go through these just to show you the array of artists that they would have had on there. So the first one, Long John Baldry, Lou Christie, Millie Small. Okay, yeah. so that, that is kind of alright, yeah, kind of on an even keel. Move okay. to the next one,
2: mate. You get to the next one, you got the Tremolos, Mike Darbo, Roger Whitaker, Julie Felix and Black Sabbath. Now that is a pickety-witch too. Dana, Labby Siffrey, Ken Dodd, The New Seekers, The Swiss and Herman's Hermits that Eclectic. is a mixed bag Eclectic doesn't even
1: cover it oh. does it and then you've got another one which is a sweet Ken Dodd so they were big on Ken The mm. tremolos The Move The Marmalade New Seekers Tony Blackburn Vanity Fair Cliff Richard Olivia Newton-John Gene Pitney Tony Christie Charlie Drake Come and on. Gilbert O'Sullivan. But it has kind of reached a bit of an identity by this time, yeah, hasn't it? It has. Uh, so we move on now the next one
2: Colin Blundstone, The Move, Roy Wood, Gene Pitney, Jack Wilde, Bay City Rollers, Peter Noon,
1: The Baron Knights, Slade, and David Bowie. All right. So that was the absolute changing point in my life, okay, which is more important to me than anybody else. So we will move on to the Bowie time. Yeah, let's now, do that. Let's do that. Okay, so the 3rd of November, 1969, Bowie Lipson. Space Oddity on the TV programme Hits A Go-Go, which was broadcast live from Zurich, also features a nice... And Aisha Brough. Ah, okay. 15th of June now,
2: 1972. Bowie's Coventry show has been cancelled, allowing him and the Spiders to travel to Manchester to record a TV programme appearance. 21st of
1: June, lift-off with Aisha broadcast. Job done. My future life as a scientist, Bob, gone straight down <laughs> the chute. And so I do remember, uh, I used to uh, get the bus down the uh, Princess Parkway. I yeah. went to St. Greg's School in Ardwick, over near where the Apollo is now. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, the school's been knocked down. There is no plaque. I've looked. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, the short and long of it, I used to uh, head off down the parkway. My mum and dad would be working till six o'clock. And so I would be passing pretty much my grand's house in Didsbury. Mm. So I'd get off the school bus and go to my grand and spend a couple of hours there until my folks got home. And one of the things I used to do on a regular occasion was run away from my grand because she would often come out with a bowl while I was watching TV and stick it on my head and have a pair of scissors flailing around trying to get rid of my feather cut.
2: Really? So she wanted to give you the old bowl cut, the classic? Man, Ooh. so I had
1: to be on my guard. So yeah. it was with great caution that I sat down uh, on that particular occasion and watched Lift Off with Aisha. And I loved it, you know, and I do remember Wally Whiten really well. And I remember Ollie yeah. Beak, the owl puppet. And of course, I remember Aisha. Uh, but uh, just sitting down there and watching Davy Bowie on the 21st of June come onto the TV, you know, thinking about watching this little black and white telly at my grand's house, it just absolutely blew my mind. And so I can't even remember if the next day I went in and and communicated with anybody, because, you know, I mean, Craig Scanlon, who uh, was later in the fall uh, at the same time as I was, uh, much of it anyway, um, yeah, he was ended up being a massive bowie. right so i can't remember if craig saw it i I can't remember really chewing the fat with anybody else at school about it but of course the story being now that it was a couple of weeks later he ended up on top of the pops and that's when most people most people saw Bowie for the first time Mm. and that really was the talk of the playground as a cliche would have it yes but i was already sold and i do remember watching top of the pops when it came on i thought it's him again and, and I I spent the next I spent the next probably three or four years watching Top of the Pops waiting for Bowie to tip yeah. up and he very rarely did in, in truth. Yeah I'm jealous of that moment and there's a reason why that
2: sadly that footage has been lost. The, the oral uh, recording is still available think you can find that in various places but there is no visual footage of Bowie doing that which is such a huge loss isn't it and a reason for that which I'll get to in a second but I, when I was talking to um, Aisha we took, I said well you know what was Bowie like? You know, Did you meet him that day? And she did say well I wasn't actually there the day he came in because I think they sort of shot it uh, you know in different time frames and sometimes she'd go outside and do her video segments you know just on location somewhere so for whatever reason the past didn't cross that day but she did say I'd known Bowie since I was 16 although I didn't see him much because he went through a bit of a mad stage when he was down at the nightclubs with Angie which is a whole sexual and drug thing uh, and I was still who I was she was very kind of straight laced always Aisha how I know Bowie in the first place is because there'd be Mark Bolan Bowie, Carl Palmer of ELP, and myself, all at the same cafe at the end of Denmark Street. This would be in the 60s, of course. I'd go three times a week, and every major performer in London would go there. David would be in there, and I remember him with fuzzy hair just trying to get his songs all done. Uh, And Mark Boland, at the same time, sat there writing about fairies, and then funnily enough he presented all that stuff to my first husband Chris Brough, who said he didn't really uh, think he could get into the fairies thing at all. He said, I love Mark and David Bowie. They were some of the nicest people. All these guys were so sweet, and at the beginning of their careers and it was such a lovely uh, sort of period in my life. Right. You know, so this went on. The reason that a lot of people don't remember Liftoff, apart from the fact it was a regional program, is because these tapes, apart from three, as we've already mentioned, just got wiped by mistake. Well, it was actually, you could see Lift Off with show right throughout the country, couldn't you? Yeah, you could, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what happened was, well, we're probably going back maybe 10, 15 years, I believe, that a technician at uh, Granada TV was asked to copy them all digitally, so all the episodes, so they'd be available for a DVD release and the rest of it. And they'd marked the ones that had already been duplicated uh, with an X, okay? Mm. And it was told, right, do the others. And, of course, what he did was he duplicated the X ones. And wiped the others. So we've got got this stack of amazing material, not just from Bowie, of course, from Slade and Black Sabbath and T-Rex and the Move and all that kind of stuff that is now supposedly lost in time. Although when I was talking to Aisha, she said, surely there are some collectors out there, somewhere, not necessarily in this country, you know, maybe in Europe or the States, whatever, who've got copies of it somehow. Unlikely, but it is possible.
1: It's possible. And, you know, I mean, by the very nature of collectors, they very rarely let things go, do mm. they? I mean, if you think about the version of Gene Genie. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, that, that just sat in somebody's loft, didn't it, yeah. for years and years. And and, and he, uh, one of the cameramen, who was using one of the, the gimmicks on Top of the Pops at mm. the time, he had to be persuaded to let it go, Yeah, uh, you know, and, and to, to have the only copy of it is a oh, bit right. no, 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 <laughs> isn't it? But, I mean, yeah, if, you, if anybody out there's got it, giz it. Oh, please.
0: The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob
2: Hughes. L is for the legendary Stardust Cowboy. Also known as Norman Carl O'Dam, born on September the 5th, 1947 in Lubbock, Texas. Often described as an eccentric outsider artist, but he also happens to be one of the unheralded pioneers of what became known
1: as Psychobilly during the 60s. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, he didn't know it, bless him, but he was going to be very influential. So, Odan was interested in space travel as a child, aren't we all? He later described how he used to look at the moon and tell himself that someday man will go to the moon. And as a teenager, he combined his interests in outer space and the American West to create the name Stardust Cowboy, adding the word legendary because I am a legend in my own time. To fans, he became known as The Ledge. I love that. So he's 14 years old already. He's
2: creating his own uh, mythology. Isn't it like Bowie, really, in Mm, so many ways? Yeah. The fact that the initials of Legendary Stardust alluded to LSD, Odom claimed it was uh, a coincidental. He also pointed out they adopted the name in 1961 before the drug had become part of popular
1: culture. I'd I'd give him the benefit of the doubt on that one for sure. Odom started playing in high school years as a way of impressing girls. Inspired by Chet Atkins, he learned to play the guitar and also taught himself to play the bugle. Arguable. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not essential (laughs) if you want to impress a girl. Anyway, one of his school friends was Joe Ely. Yeah, he was. Uh, What about his early songs? It was a great one. my underwear froze down to the clothesline
2: so he'd serenade people with that in his own words i then learned to play the drums bugle kazoo harmonica Buffalo horn and the rubboard. Now this is a American variant on the washboard. So it was like, man. you know, the the American Derek Guiler, really, wasn't he? Oh yeah. Uh, when I turned seventeen in the eleventh grade, I entertained before school to five hundred people on the patio, on the tennis court, the auditorium steps, the teachers' parking lot, and in the halls and barracks. Boys threw money and
1: candy at me while the girls cried because they treated me that way. What? So, for seven weeks, I sang in the parking lot of the Music Box, a teenage nightclub, to a crowd of teenagers. One girl would run her finger through my hair while I looked into her eyes and I sang Last Kiss. Aww. It's all good stuff, this. After high school, he went to college and studied electronics. Whilst there, he hit on the idea of writing a wild song that would captivate everybody. This led him to write Paralysed, which he performed at local talent contests. So... Paralyzed ended up on uh, Kenny Everett's uh, "World's Worst" record, didn't yes, you? It on, did you? Uh, on on vomit green vinyl and all that. And so <laughs> that's how that's how most people in this country yeah. got to know it. Certainly of our generation. Yeah. So here's the story behind that. So we've been inspired by Tiny
2: Tim's appearances on the Tonight Show. So O'Don set out for New York in 1968, only to make it as far as a nightclub in Fort Worth, in Texas. Which is probably just down the road, isn't it? Yeah. Two vacuum cleaner salesmen looking to get into the music business put him uh, in a local recording studio where there just happened to be a. 21-year-old uh, T-Bone Burnett already in there, having done a session the night before. So Burnett rigged up two microphones, got behind the drum kit and listened to Odam's instructions to uh, play in the same tempo I'm singing in and the end result
1: was paralysed. See, again, I didn't know that T-Bone Burnett was involved in that. Yeah, it's so. a remarkable, isn't it? So, Odom played Dobro and Bugle, whilst T-Bone Burnett played drums. The track is notable for featuring strange growls, yelps, and weird vocal mannerisms, with wild acoustic guitar and equally manic drumming. Said Odom, the only thing I wanted was to write a song that was wilder than anything Elvis had ever done. His music was too slow for me. Oh, it would be.
2: 500 copies of the single were pressed and released on Odam's own Psycho Suave label. The song gained some popularity around Texas enough for Mercury Records to pick it up It then made the Billboard Top 200 in the States and he made an appearance on NBC TV's Rowan and Martin's Laughing dressed in his trademark getup bookskin jacket boots and
1: spurs and a ten gallon hat it is, this is legendary, the it performance is. in itself, isn't yeah. it? And it is available on YouTube, I've yeah. seen it. It performed Paralysed and its B-side, Who's Knocking on My Door? During the latter song, the laughing cast began clowning around, around him. Rather than taking it in good humour, however, Odam got mad and ran off the set. That wasn't part of the act. Mm,
2: you can see that for yourself, yeah. can't you? In the 1994 book, the new book of rock lists, authors Dave Marsh and James Bernard named Paralysed the worst song issued by a major label. Their justification was that the legendary Stardust Cowboy was a one-man band incapable of playing any instrument, singing in tune, or keeping me in time, even with himself. That's not stopped other people, has it, right? Let's be honest. Indeed. Whilst acknowledging that in some country circles, Paralyzed is seen as a camp classic.
1: But it's more than that, isn't it? I mean, do you if you look at, like, The Cramps, for instance, and uh, Psycho Billy has been mentioned, yeah. uh, but uh, there's a whole era just been been built around, not just this one song, but it's a a pivotal part in it anyway, put it that way. So, in 1976, Paralyzed ranked 15 in the first ever Festive 50, a list documenting the favourite songs of listeners of the John Peel radio show. Yeah, so after he'd appeared on Laughing,
2: Odam was invited to appear on other shows, but they were cancelled because of a musician strike that put live TV performances on hold. By the time the Strike was over, his 15 minutes of fame had gone. Historian Rob Viner of Texas Tech University considers O'Dam's musical career a product of desperation and proof that there's nothing to do in Lubbock. Oh,
1: harsh. Uh, O'Dam has continued recording since paralysed, albeit sporadically, and released several albums and singles. So we get to the Bowie connection here, don't we? So
2: Bowie uh, borrowed the word stardust for Ziggy Stardust. Of course, from the legendary Stardust Cowboy, when Bowie went to America for the first time on a promo tour in January 1971, Mercury Records' Ron Oberman met him at the airport and he gave him the, uh, the Ledges' three
1: Mercury singles. Yeah, and, uh, and this is Bowie. Back home, I choked on paralysed, gasped in awe at Down in the Wrecking Yard and fell all about the floor at I Took a Trip on a Gemini Spaceship, wrote Bowie later. It was a laugh of love. I could not believe that such a talent was unrecognised. I became a lifelong fan. And Ziggy got a surname. He did.
2: Bowie covered Odom's I Took a Trip on a Gemini Spaceship on Heathen, so the song was like an LSD-style homage to the old Van Huyzen Mercer tune, I Thought About You. Uh, as a way of saying thanks for that, Odom recovered. Ordered a version of Space Oddity. And Bowie had seen a note on O'Dam's website explaining that he was struggling for money and it would sure be nice if David Bowie would pay me something for using part of my name in Ziggy Stardust. Spe- Ziggy spelt Z-I-G-G-I-E
1: by um, the way. And pr- um, probably not with any RC intent at all. No, at all. Right? At all. But, I mean, he's, he's, he's a sweet character, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, and Bowie later told Livewire when I read on his site that he thought that because I'd borrowed his name that at least I should sing one of his songs I got guilty and wanted to make amends in immediately, so I covered one of his best songs, I Took a Trip on a Gemini Spaceship, although he sings Spacecraft on the record. Right, okay. In June 2002,
2: Bowie was invited to be the guest editor of Mojo magazine, which allowed him to commission pieces on the lesser-known musicians that he really loved, and he wrote, being an editor for just one day is a lovely excuse to clean out the closet. I found all my old legendary Stardust uh, singles in there, all on Mercury, and that got me into a quiet reverie or two, along with Wildman Fisher and solo Sid Barrett, the Ledge was instrumental in creating unwittingly the now current outsider music genre. Mr. Stardust takes the title of world's most influential cult artist in my small world for maybe obvious reasons.
1: Yeah, I mean, and people often talk about Daniel Johnston, don't they, in the same yeah, tones. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's undeniable. So, also in 2002, Bowie invited O'Dam to perform as part of Meltdown, which Bowie was curating that year. Later that year, Bowie's tour made it to San Francisco, where he finally met O'Dam at the Shoreline Amphitheater theatre. I love all this bit. So filmmaker Tony Philpott, he said he he was there on the night and he recalled later, when Davy came walking into the room he yelled out, Ledge! and ran to him and tried to hug him. And Norman was having none of that. He stepped back slightly and David ended up giving him two hands on the arm squeeze as opposed to a full hug. (laughs) Awkward. (laughs) Very awkward. Also in May 2007, The Ledge played at the David Bowie Highline Festival in New York at Bowie's Invitation. He most certainly did. So a documentary of O'Dam's career entitled Cotton Picking Smash, the story of the legendary Stardust Cowboy, was made during the late 1980s. It's still awaiting an official release, which is a real shame. It is, yes.
2: Can you get it online or anything? Uh, I don't think you can, uh, but I'd love to see that, certainly. He currently lives in San Jose, California, and he's still performing regularly. Since the late 90s, he's played with a backing band called the Altamont Boys, which includes Klaus of Dead Kennedy's in there. Guitarist Jay Rosen of the Better Beatles and drummer Joey Myers. In May
1: 2010, a college radio station in Mankato, Minnesota, flew in the legendary Stardust Cowboy and his band for a show. The mayor then declared that May 21st was officially... Legendary Stardust Cowboy Day in Mancato. Wow, great. Quite in, right. In late
2: 2011, the legendary Stardust Cowboy released a compilation of his music, a double CD on Cherry Red Records called For Sarah, Raquel and David, an anthology. The first names referring to Sarah Ferguson, Duchess of York, <laughs> Raquel Welsh, actress, and of course Bowie. Uh, still rumours he might finally do a European tour after all these years. So I think uh, he, he was
1: a big admirer of those three people. Well, fair play to him. All right, let's have a look at his discography, just the singles. Yeah, so yeah. in 1968, Paralyzed, back with Who's Knocking on My Door. Also that year, I
2: took a trip on a Gemini spaceship, uh, back by Down in the Wrecking Yard. And again, 1968, Kiss and Run, back with Everything's Getting Bigger But Our Love. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, These are, you know, later releases, kind of reissues. Standing in a trash can in 89 with my underwear froze to
1: the clothesline on the B-side. 1991, Relaxation, back with I Ride a Tractor. 1992, I Hate CDs, backed by Linda. And then 2017, Twas the Night Before Christmas, which is the Flexi Disc with the Christmas card. And I've got that. Uh, I hate CDs. Uh, have uh, you? Yeah, yeah. I, have, I haven't got the vinyl of it, but I've got the track. And uh, Well, I've got, the, I've got a compilation of your I stuff have, anyway, yeah, yeah. which is brilliant. But uh, yeah, there you go. We salute you, Ledge. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode lodger the lower third the laughing gnome leonard jerry leonard lion's maid advert
0: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time